Hi friends, Sonny Webster, Olympic weightlifter and general all-round big dick on Instagram has joined me for a discussion about his career. We did this before we went on a night out in Newcastle and I think the night out's probably worthy of a podcast as well. But today we're going to find out exactly how Sonny got into the sport of weightlifting, his entire journey from starting at school right through up until he walked out at the Olympic opening ceremony next to Andy Murray holding a tiny little flag. (laughs) So I absolutely love this episode. The storytelling and the narrative of Sonny's career from when he started up until when he decided to leave home at the basically at the protest of his dad to go and live on his mate's university halls of residence floor because that was where he needed to go because he wanted to lift. It's an incredibly grounding story and it provides a lot of perspective, I think, that we can apply to our own lives. And on top of that, it's just fucking cool. Like, we get to find out what the kit selection process for the Olympics is like, what it felt like to walk out at the opening ceremony, what it feels like as you're warming up backstage before you go out to make a lift on the biggest stage in the world. It's um, it's a really, really interesting story. The plan will be to have Sonny back. We got up to the Olympics in super detail, and then it was two hours deep. He desperately needed a wee, and the place we were going to for food was going to close in about 30 minutes' time. So he will be back. There's a lot more to Sonny's story that we're going to go through. And if you want to ask him any questions, head to YouTube and post in the comments section. I will make sure that he logs on and has a little bit of a look now and then. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of their pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee, so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product, they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom, and MW15 at checkout. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern 
right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, enjoy the journey of an Olympian. From zero to Rio, here's Sonny Webster. Everyone who's listening, welcome back. Sonny Webster's joined me today. How are you? Very well, thank you. What's happening? Long drive today. Long drive, five hours in the car, decent training session considering. Very decent training session and worth it, obviously, to see me. Of course, I'm looking forward to (laughs) the later part of tonight's antics. Yes, of course. Um, Those of you who know what I, uh, how I perceive drinking, I'm going to suspend my drinking habits or my lack of drinking habits for one evening. I can Bearing talk in about mind when I met you. you I were was on still a six months sober. six months sobriety stint. Yeah, exactly. And we still went out, and you were there like itching. itching. <laughs> it was difficult, but that was at the end of it. That was like I'd mm, like two weeks, two weeks to go. go. Yeah, fair. It was not easy, but yeah, that was um, that was still a really fun night at body, body power in Birmingham. So good because we literally met like a few hours before that as well, and we just like click. Yeah, it's cool, man. Oh, it's man. awesome. Mm. So anyone who's watching. On the brand new Modern Wisdom YouTube channel. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. If you don't know what Sonny does, Video Mandine will make it appear here and here and also here. So, Sonny is an Olympic weightlifter, represented Great Britain at Rio. Yeah, 2016. Um, and now you are traveling the world doing weightlifting seminars and coaching people, doing a lot of PT work. Having a lot of fun. Having an awful lot of fun and being a big dick Instagram swinger and <laughs> all the rest of the stuff, man. So for the people who don't know who you are and for the people who do, can you give us a background? How did you start in weightlifting? What, where does it go? Where do you begin? Yeah, well, I guess I have to take you right back to me even as a kid and go back and talk about... I guess um, what got me into sport, like, I mean, I've always been sporty as a kid. You know, you get those kids, that are the sporty kids, and then you get the kids that are more artistic, etc. I was always a sporty kid. Um, my dad was always into golf, so that naturally, before I could pretty much walk, my dad had golf uh, club in my hands. And I even remember, like, he's still got videos like, on, you know, the old 
video recorders, like the tapes mm-hmm. of him trying to teach me. And he's so brutal with me. Like, <laughs> my golf swing's pure. And he's like, that's wrong. It's bad. And I'm there. Like, <laughs> like, Three years old. Yeah. So, um, my dad was like, was pushing me with my sport. Um, and going back to sort of like year, when do you start like primary school? Year five. Are you five years old? Yeah. So from primary school really up to, and that goes up to what year six, doesn't it? So during that time of school, um, I was in like all the sort of school clubs, like gymnastics, um, you know, athletics, the cricket ball throw was my event, Um, 80 meter sprint until you get to year six and it became a hundred. And I'd like... (laughs) That last 20 meters just (laughs) killed you. Just killed me. I was always like little like stocky, like obviously my mum's from New Zealand, so I've got a bit of Maori in me. Mm-hmm. So like got that stocky sort of build and I'd be like off for like the first like 40 and then I'd hang on for the 80 <laughs> metres. As soon as it became like 100 metres, I was finished. It was always about being the fastest kid at school as well, wasn't yeah. it? So um, yeah, that finished me there. I tried high jump, obviously these little stumps are no good at that. Uh, <laughs> long jump was okay, but again, not great. And slowly realised that I was a kid that was good at lots of things, but great at nothing. Yeah. Um, and I always tell this story because there's one, like, key point for me in, I guess, my Olympic journey, if you like, that stands out for me. I don't know what it is about this moment, but it still, like, sticks in my head. But I remember being sat in maths class in school, year, I would have been, oh, year five, probably. Um, and it's... I'm going to say 2000 and maybe it's 2002 and I'm sat in maths class doing maths and um, in the, the way that my school was, it was like three classrooms and they were divided by like sliding doors and the PE teacher come running in, burst open one of these sliding doors and was like, stop, we've got to turn the TV on and there was only one TV in, um, in the school. And so we were like, right, fine, like better, better than maths, we'll yeah. watch a bit of TV. And uh, Miss Cousins, I think the PE teacher name was, and she flipped the TV on. And it was right at the moment when David Beckham and Kelly Holmes were jumping up and down, hugging each other. And do you know that, what I'm on about? No. Okay, so it's right when we won the bid for London 2012 Olympics, because obviously them two were like key figures. Yeah, of like the, um, of the... Campaign. Yeah, the campaign. So um, that moment just sticks out for me as something as like my first real recollection of the Olympics and what it was. And I don't know what it is about that moment, but it still like makes me feel happy now. But mm-hmm. it was just how much it meant to them made me feel from like right from that moment. Like, I want to be part of that. I want that feeling, whatever that is. And um, after them, for the next sort of couple of weeks, I guess, in school... They did a lot of like classes around the Olympics, what it was to obviously educate us as to what mm-hmm. the Olympic Games was. And um, at that time, I could could have told you every golfer in the top ten, of, but mm-hmm. knew nothing about what, you know any Olympic sports. So we learned all that, and um, I guess then we got into year six, and again I continued with the sports that I was doing, and you know, pundled sort of along, and then. Um, we ended up moving down from year six to year seven down to a school in Ivybridge. So this is back in Reading and um, down to Ivybridge was a little town in um, Devon near Plymouth. And so you are um, on the arse end of the country there. Yeah. Like, so, you're as far well, away from you can go here further, as possible. Go Cornwall. Oh yeah, true, true. But yeah, long Pretty south. south. 
Yeah, so started for year six, um, year seven then at this new school. And naturally when you start a new school and you don't know anyone, you're kind of like that loner. And at the time I was living with my dad when we moved down there, when we first went down there. And I remember like my first day at this school and like, you know how like your mum makes you pat lunches mm-hmm. and she can because it's your mum and yeah. they know how to make pat lunch. Yeah. And then it was like, my dad was making me this packed lunch and like, bless me, tried too hard, but at the same time, I didn't know what the fuck he was doing. <laughs> so you just roll you into school with a single baguette and like... Yeah, pretty much like, uh, yeah, go in the shop and get what you want. And you're like, no, you went to slice my sandwiches and triangles, dad. <laughs> so I just remember that first day being like absolutely horrendous, wanting to cry. Shit like, packed lunch. Yeah, <laughs> shit packed lunch. Starting this new school and just being like, Oh god, this is fuck. horrendous! Yeah, fuck new school, and it's a big school as well. Okay, and it was it was Ibridge Community College, and it's really well renowned, known for its sport, mm-hmm. which is half the reason why we went there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like um, a community college, so it was like a normal public school, mm-hmm. not private. Yeah, and um, yeah, so started in this in this school, no mates, like shit at lunch, and I decided at lunch times um, that I'd go and sit in the weightlifting gym and uh, so your school had a weightlifting gym yes and that we must were, be very rare I think you'd probably be able to count the number of schools mm, on one hand who, two at the time when I started there was only two schools in the country that offered weightlifting as part of the GCSE curriculum so you could do it as like a um, as part of your PE GCSE that's amazing yeah um, yeah only two the other one was in Birmingham I think Baverstock so yeah really rare to come across this uh, but we did have also a golf academy even at, in that, that school as well. So I, in the summer, I eventually joined the golf academy as well. But anyway, so I went and sat in this weightlifting gym. And I guess each year, maybe 60 or 70 students sign up to weightlifting club mm-hmm. at lunchtime mm-hmm. um, from year seven. Um, but I wasn't really interested. I was just like killing my lunchtimes, basically yeah. watching people do it because... so I guess I've been there for nearly two weeks um, before the coach came up to me and said look you've been in now two weeks you're weirding everyone out you're weirding everyone out you're also (laughs) taking that that pack lunch is fucking shit yeah you're taking the piss (laughs) out of like some of the kids giving it a go and the coach is just kind of like come have a go yourself yeah like or fuck off basically yeah take your shit pack lunch yeah so um I was like, at the time, like, I didn't know that, that it was an Olympic sport and I wasn't really like, for me, sort of thing. I was like, I'm, I'm a golfer, whatever. <laughs> um, and the coach said, look, now, come on, you've got to come tomorrow lunchtime. Like, and um, I thought, like, so after I had my arm twist, I was like, fuck it, I'll go along and have a go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next lunchtime I went along and purely because I'd sat there watching people do it, like anything, if you watch someone do it enough, you have a pretty good idea of what you need to do. Yeah. Um, and I'd done that and after the first session the coach came over to me and said like did did the, the, the other coach teacher had to do that and I was like no no I've just been watching like I knew what I needed to do and they were like she was like fuck sort of thing and she was like um, you got detention every lunchtime so you want to be here essentially <laughs> so that's how I spent the rest of my time um, in school was practicing the weightlifting 
And it started off, so fell into it by chance, but then it started off just being like a lunchtime thing. I'd go in for an hour of lunch and do my weightlifting and I made some friends through that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it became something that we do, get up and go and do an hour before school. And then it became like before school, lunchtime and after school. And um, yeah, I mean, within the first, I remember my first competition, which was about six months after I started and it was actually at my school. And uh, I remember crying because I didn't uh, didn't get all my lifts. I think I got five out of my six lifts and started crying. <laughs> the perfectionist at an early age then. Yes, always. So um, yeah, that's, I guess, from me, childhood to initially finding weightlifting. Yeah, that's interesting. What I think is really interesting is that you've said about um, your capacity to be able to look and then turn the movement just from visually seeing someone else do it. I think that's definitely the mark of a good athlete. But everyone learns differently. And I find this even as a coach now where sometimes I can say something to one of the guys I'm coaching and they go, yeah, bang and do it. Yeah. Someone needs you to show them a visual cue of them. Like, you know, you actually doing a demonstration Mm -hmm. for them to, understand some people need to see themselves in order to yeah. be able to interpret what they need to do wrong some people just don't get it at all yeah right. <laughs> but that's the thing and everyone learns differently and i think i've always been very visual in the way that that i learned that yeah the ability for you the proprioception to understand where your body is from having just seen something mm. i think is definitely the mark of someone that has a natural athletic talent and i think the fact that you've started so young doing the golf swing, golf's very fine, tuned very movement. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Very precise. And I can say the same for myself to a degree. I did cricket for 10 years and that's exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. It's very technique based. And when I started with Jordan at Reebok CrossFit Tyneside, I was able to pick up like the first time that he taught me to do a muscle up, I got a muscle up. The first time he taught yeah. me to do toes to you have an awareness of your body and yeah. like, what what is being asked to do. A hundred percent. I think that People don't like to hear that there's a lot of natural, uh, a big natural component in success within sport because it takes away someone's hard work capacity to get to the top. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is that some children and adults that start sports will naturally be able to learn faster. They'll be able to pick it up more quickly. So you've started your weightlifting, you're doing it up to what, three hours a day now? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I was doing up to... What, what guess, are your lift? Is it, is yeah, it 11 or 12-year-old? What's your, What are your lifts? Can you remember so what your openers were? I can go, I can tell you sort of what I was lifting at 12. I would have been snatching around 70 kilos. 12, 13, about 70 kilos. Clean jerking around 90. At 12 and 13 years old? Yeah, at 50. There's crossfitters up and down the yeah. country that are listening to this that are burying their head in their hands right at now. At 55 kilo body weight or something like that. <laughs> I used to compete in the 56 kilo class. Hang on, you were 55 kilos at 12 years old? Yeah. No, no, I would have been... I started... When I first started, I was 46. And then went up to 45. But the lightest men's category is uh, 56 kilo. So that was like my category that I competed in. <laughs> so yeah, I suppose then we're nearly two years in um, and it's about, yeah, two years in. So I'm, maybe it would have been 13 when I did those weights. Yep. And um, I'd won everything, like the British under 13s, British under 16s, under 17s. I broke the records, thought I was the dog's bollocks. <laughs> I was now gone from like Billy No Mates in school to really obviously popular kid in the school. Jock. Yeah, like... And uh, I got selected for my first um, international. Then mm-hmm. I would have been, like I said, 13, 14. It was a European under-17s in Pavia. 
So you're competing against 17-year-olds at yeah. the age of 13 or 14. Yeah, but that didn't bother me. I was like, I'm going to smash bring, this as well. I've never lost. So I was like, let's be having this, I'm going to win this as well. <laughs> Cocky, definitely. <laughs> um, I went to the competition and ended up getting six out of six. Broke the British rec- my, my own British records by a kilo in each lift. Yes. Finished 22nd out of 23. <laughs> that was only because 23 bombed out. <laughs> <laughs> Bollock last. And... I again I remember that feeling of getting like working watching the scoreboard going what's going on there like am I in the right category like surely you got my name. You got there was name women out lifting me the whole shebang and I was like wow Shit. so uh, yeah one of the best things that happened to me though so early on as a kid in sport because I very quickly realised that it wasn't about being the best kid in your country or the best at your age you had to look so much further past being the best in your pond if you wanted to compete at the highest level. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I said, one of the best uh, one of the best lessons I learned really early on. Humbling, um, I suppose, when you said you, you were kind of big dick in it for a little while. Mm-hmm. And yeah, bringing yourself back down to earth was probably what, what you needed. Yeah, to but at the time, obviously you don't notice it, but I look back and reflect now on my career because, I mean, I've been doing it 12, 13 years. I've had a lot of years lifting in me and there's set definitely certain points of my career that I pinpoint and go, that was a turning point or that was when things went to the next level. So how did you react once that had happened? What happened to your training and what happened to your approach to the sport overall? Yeah, so over the, the next couple of years of coming back from that, I decided that I needed to work much harder in my training and, you know, the, I just started working a lot harder than the other guys, but... At the same time, straight after that, so 2000 and coming to 2008, just shortly after that first international, um, I actually ended up um, having my back injury. Okay. So um, it started off just being like a nervy pain in my back when I was lifting and I was like, it just didn't feel comfortable. But it progressed to the point where I couldn't walk. I was in that much pain. How old are you here? So 2008, so that's 10 years ago now, so it would have been, like, yeah, 14 years old. Right. And, yeah. So it's a young age to be having a what feels like a severe problem. A severe problem to the point where I ended up having crutches for eight weeks because to help me walk around school because I like, couldn't do anything. You weren't able to train, you weren't able to walk Nothing, crutches. nothing. And obviously that made me like extremely upset even at that age because like, I was training every day and that was... Huge part of your life. Yeah, already at that age. So um, we went to see a physio, um, and it was actually Tom Daly's physio at the time, Amanda Booth, because my coach, when I first started, Michaela Breeze, was a Commonwealth gold medalist. She'd been to the Olympic Games. She was my first coach. Um, So she took me to see this Amanda Booth, and um, she was like, God, this bad. I've not seen anything like this before. Go see a doctor. Um, so then we went up to Bath University from Devon to see a back specialist there and have the scan. And obviously the scan came back and it was like, at the time I only had two dehydrated discs. I, I've had one extra one since. So I had like two dehydrated discs. Dehydrated? Yeah. So basically you obviously got fluid in your disc. Okay. And so I know if you're in it's like compressed. So okay. dehydrated disc. So instead of them being like that thick, it was like that. So I already had that, like mm-hmm. compression of my discs. Um, and then basically um, sacrum first vertebrae were fused together so um, that put pressure then on the disc above because obviously you'd have an extra 
disc there normally mm-hmm. that if you imagine when your back goes into flexion gives you a nice curve curve but because my arm was like this to begin with and you'll still see my back when I set my back the first bit of it stays flat and then I get my curve <laughs> but obviously that's someone shoved disc, a rod in it yeah but obviously that disc then above where the two are fused has to take more force yeah and it caused it to um come out basically slip protrude yeah um, slightly and then because I was so young the bone because my bones are growing the osteophytes have grown over the top of the disc like out over the disc to like protect it I guess okay and that's what was actually pushing on my sciatica nerve causing okay. the the pain the pain so, so you've, the, you've walked in and you're just like a glossary book of back injuries right yeah and the doctors like, I remember going back up to Bath my consultation he's like I've never seen anything like this from someone your age. He was like, can we take this to the world, um, you know, medical conference to discuss it? And I was like, yeah, no problem. And they did. You <laughs> need to call in an expert from yeah, Lithuania. And he sort of came back and was like, you have two <coughs> choices, really. If you carry on lifting, you're going to be in a wheelchair. Um, or you give it a go of rehabbing it and see what happens. Uh, but he was basically saying, you need to stop weightlifting. So that was obviously really upset me down. And I guess I had like sort of two weeks of not really knowing what to do. And then Amanda Booth came back to me and said, look, let's, let's give it a go and just try and rehab it and we'll just see what happens. So we went back to working um, on low level core stuff and I'd go see her three times a week for rehab, etc. And um, at the time, after a little while, I started just when I could walk, etc. again, and was in very little pain, started snatching just for the five kilo bar. Mm-hmm. And again, this is one of the, like, the things that I think, and I mean, Ben Bergeron did a really good talk about injury like a while back and, you know, about when I, in his talk, he's talking about how, it, when his daughter broke her, a tore ACL in a lacrosse thing. And it's like, that really like made me realize back at the same point when this back injury happened to me, it gave me a, point to actually correct things that were wrong in my lifting because though yeah I was a really good lifter there was I was making like little technical mistakes like my knees used to come in when I used to clean I wasn't really strong enough for how good I was technically yeah and the bar used to crash on me etc my arms like little spindles yeah and it gave me time to sort of as I was rehabbing and coming back, I spent a year snatching just 15 kilos. Just working on fundamentals and technique. Technique, ingraining it, which is like why I think now, nearly 10 years on, my technique's really good and really consistent Grease because I had that time to correct those issues earlier on that a lot of people don't because they keep going, keep going, keep going. And then you get... They get a bad injury yeah. and that's it. Yeah. Or you just never be able to progress because those technical patterns are... So there's a, an, an interesting segue there. So I started boxing uh, about three, four years ago. Mm. And it was originally to do a white collar boxing fight against another promoter who's a good mate. And um, I, I loved it. I absolutely, I really, really enjoyed it and decided, I'm, fuck it, I'm going to continue. And went out to Thailand and went to Thailand and did kickboxing and Muay Thai and stuff like that. And I absolutely loved it. What I found was that because I'd spent so long doing bodybuilding, that, I mean, you can hear that little click there. That's my wrist. Yeah. It's, I, I swear that I didn't mean for it to happen at the right time. 
But uh, <laughs> <laughs> full pee for the coolie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm just gonna pop it away from the mic, or else it makes that and I get annoyances off the audience. So I'm boxing, and what I found was that because of the years of doing like chest press and stuff like that, my power of being able to throw punches was super, super high. But because my technique wasn't there, I actually ended up injuring my wrists so badly. And I'm like, no, this can't be the way. Like, it can't be that I'm too powerful for my own body. I don't even know how to throw a punch properly yet. But that was the case. And it sounds like the same for you. You were almost too strong for your own biomechanics. Like, you were able to lift weights that your body wasn't able to support. I think it was the other way around. Like, technically, like... I was enable. It was enabling me to lift heavier than my body was actually yes. ready for. But yeah, same principle. Yeah, yeah. Sure. but coming at it from a different side. So you've spent your time snatching fifteen kilos, and yeah, came back two thousand and nine. So this is had. Well, I can remember doing another Europeans, another juniors, and I was successful in those years up to the point where I finished um, coming up to year five or six and um I think through having done that having having that injury I started to question um I guess bits of what my coach was getting me to do because I was going to competitions internationals and seeing other guys that were far stronger than me lifting differently to me and I was like to my coach why weren't we doing so much deadlifts and pulls and squats Mm. as the other guys Mm. And the coach was like, oh, you don't need that. It's all about, you know, speed and technique. And I was like, getting to the point where I was lifting as much as she was. And I guess I got to the point where I believed that I needed someone who was lifting more weight Mm -hmm. to understand what it takes to lift that weight. And now being in that position, or now, like, you know, 10 years on, I I think it was the right choice that I made. So... Uh, we did have a bit of a disagreement, a bit of a falling out, and it got to year six where you decide sixth form, college, etc. Mm-hmm. And I was still playing golf at this point, and I was playing to a good level. I, mean, I was playing off like four, three or four handicap alongside my weight of thing. Like, wow. So um, I was good, and uh, my dad was obviously really wanting me to crack on with um, golf. My golf. And um, I had to make a decision what I was going to do, basically. So I ended up finding a weightlifting coach in Bristol called Andy Souter. And it was a really well-renowned weightlifting gym. It was the closest to um, Plymouth as we could find home. And one of my friends was going to university there. So I was like, well, I'll move to Bristol and go join this weightlifting gym. And off we go. Were you going to go to college as well, like sixth form or whatever? Or were you just going to go to weightlift full time? To weightlift, that that was it. I was doing that. Single-minded. Yeah. And... um, I had good GCSEs. I had like six A stars, six A's and four B's, four C's that did all like the triple awards and all the extra ones. So I had good GCSEs. Um, and so I said to my dad, I want to move to Bristol to uh, Wait, come wait there. Age 16. And he just looked at me like, you damn, you're not doing that. <laughs> um, so anyway, I went away for a couple of weeks and I went on the computer, did a bit of research and stuff and um, I ended up finding a golf academy in Bristol. <laughs> so I went back to my dad I said dad you know what scrap weightlifting like, I want to join this golf academy and he was like I'm not stupid but <laughs> he was like but I'll let you go but on one condition so okay go on he said I'll give you £200 a month for six months and if you don't find your own way 
in six months you have to come back home. So I was like, fuck, okay, well, let's give it a go. That's flying the nest, big style, right? Yeah, so at 16, off I went, like, I hardly knew how to wipe my own bum, went to Bristol, and um, my mate was obviously just started uni there, and um, slept on his uni hall floors for the first two months of being in Bristol. And as you can imagine, fresh as week, went out, got hammered, had my mate's ID, like, (laughs) made every mistake you could make as a 16-year-old moving out from home and having no responsibilities, just do what you want um but at the same time like great had so much fun i got to the i managed to get to stay there to the point when um someone actually dobbed me in for being 16 to the security guard (laughs) for reasons that we won't mention um and i ended up having to find a room there to rent but obviously living off 200 pounds a month was very difficult 50 pound a week like (laughs) through everything like and it was tough and um I used to get the bus down from North Bristol down to um, the centre of town to um, walk to the gym. And the gym was in St. Paul's, which is a notoriously, like, bad area, rough area. It's got, like, a bad stigma behind it. Okay. And not now, but at the time it did. Um, But the Empire Sports Club were there. And like I said, this was a proper gym. Like, this is an old church. And anyone who went to the Empire, it was known everywhere, you'd train properly. There's a weightlifting in there, there's boxing. We had like world champion boxers coming out of there, Mr. Universes, so bodybuilding. Everything was done to a high, a high yeah, degree. Yeah, Precious McKenzie training there, like the lot. Yeah. Um, so if you went there, you were serious. And used to, I get off the bus and I used to walk down to this um, to the gym. And um, I guess it got to month five of being in Bristol and uh, having a whale at the time, like. I kind of, you take for granted all of those things that your parents do for you, <laughs> washing up, washing your clothes. Sandwiches and cut, cut the corners. Cut, yeah, yeah. cut sandwiches, etc. Yeah. And uh, yeah, had to grow up really quickly, I guess. And it was coming up to, I guess now we're looking about a year out from London 2012. Yeah. Was that in the back of your mind? Were you thinking of when course, you first like, started, were you, was that the goal? Was it London 2012? I want to compete in my home nation. Of course. That's what I mean. My dream was always to go to the Olympic Games. And that was definitely in the back of my mind. And um, even in my coaches, that there was a good chance because when you're at Olympics in your home country, you get quota spots. So the qualification isn't like how it is now, where it's, you have to be like top 10 in the world. And it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. This is like you have, um, you have to, um, yeah, so you get quota spots. This is like you ha- you don't have to be top 10 in the world. So you had three spots, basically, so it's much easier to qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely in my, on my compass for sure. So, um, like I said, I was, used to get the walk down through St. Paul's to the gym, and I'm in month five of being there, and I'm working out how I can try and stay mm-hmm. in Bristol because I'm two months out from the World Championships, which was the first, uh, one of the last qualifiers for the Olympic Games, and I was like, I need to stay in Bristol to do this. And I uh, walked into the car park one day, and like I said, I've already described what the Empire was like, old church and a mm-hmm. shit old area. But there's this brand new white Porsche 911 Turbo S parked in the car park. And I'm just like, fuck, like that is... You're brave. Yeah, that is nice car. What the fuck is it doing here? Yeah. And um, I walked into reception and I said um, to my coach, Andy, who was behind the bar, I said, uh, Andy, who's a... Whose car's that part in the car park? His name's Jeff. He's in the main gym, in the bodybuilding gym. So I thought, all right, fine. 
and uh, walked up into the main gym, kicked the door open, and I just shouted, who's Jeff? <laughs> and I re- the rooms that I'd probably say like six times the size of this room, it's yeah. quite a big long hall, and there's everyone in there, like I said, is serious training. Yeah. Like. And uh, they've all sort of stopped because I've come in and said, who's Jeff? And Jeff's on the other end of the room, um, <laughs> sat there doing bench press, and he sat up and he goes, what do you want? I'm Jeff. <laughs> and I just said, fancy sponsoring me? <laughs> First thing I said to him, like, and uh, he goes, well, um, how much is it going to cost? And like I said, at the time, I was living off £200 a month. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, he's obviously got a few quid. I need to be here two more months. An extra 100 quid, get some trainers, 500 quid. So 500 quid. And he went, what, a month? And my jaw sort of like hit the floor <laughs> at that point. Bearing in mind, I was living off £200 a month. Yeah. Everyone in the gym probably only just about earned five hundred pound a month, and this guy is going to give it to me, the little kid. So everyone stopped what they're doing. They scrapped their sessions, and they're just watching this conversation just go back and forth now. And I went, um, yeah, yeah, okay then. And he just went sound and just led back down the carried the bench press. What story? I'm just kind of like, has that really just happened? But okay, yeah. walked out and got on with my session. And then about an hour later, Jess come out and he gone. Uh, yeah, I'll have, what's your bank details? So I give my bank details. And sure enough, the next month, five equipment in my account. And uh, I ran my dad up and I said, Dad, I'm staying in Bristol. Fuck golf. Fuck. Yeah, exactly. Do you try and go to you the Throw your baguette down the, bit, down the yeah. drain. And um, I guess after that, me and my dad didn't really speak so much <laughs> for a while. Um, a relationship definitely like sort of went, went apart. You but, think he was predicting that you were going to end up going back home? Um... I don't think so. I think he knew that I was very determined to do what I wanted to do. Um, but because we sort of drifted, and I'll go back and tell you a little bit more about Jeff, because he's kind of a really big part to my success and my story, because from that moment on, um, so I'll go back and tell you about Jeff anyway. So Jeff used to race BMX as a kid, and he was a really good BMX racer. And... Um, he was European number two and good enough to go to America to turn pro. Um, but unfortunately, his um, his parents didn't have enough money to send him out to America, so he subsequently ended up quitting and uh, stopping his sport. But off the back of that, he ended up setting up a telecoms company and now is an extremely successful telecoms company. In his own right. In his own right, multi-millionaire. Um, but at the same time, one of the most down-to-earth, nicest, funniest guys you'll ever meet. And he saw me in a similar situation. I had a dream of, you know, going to the Olympics. He was very aware of me and my circumstances. And, you know, because at the club, I was obviously well known um, of what I had dreams of doing. And uh, he saw me in a similar position to him as a young kid, but he was in a position where he could help. Mm. And uh, so he did. A lot of uh, sort of poetic irony, poetic justice in that situation, right? That you happened to come across a guy who, was in such a similar situation to you. And then not only was in a similar situation, but had the resources to be able to assist yeah, you. I think, that. yeah, definitely. It's a stroke of, a stroke of luck for sure. But the thing that I take away from that and the thing that I try and, because people go, well, Sonny, like, you managed to get sponsors. No one else did, etc." And it's, it's as simple as if you don't ask, you don't get. And that wasn't the first time I'd asked someone for sponsorship. That was probably about the 150th time after countless letters I'd sent out and just had no replies, etc. Although, yeah, it's great, but it doesn't necessarily happen the first time. But if you don't have the balls 
to ask someone, then how are you ever going to know? Do you think that that little situation that you've said there and the the framework that's around it is a microcosm to a degree for weightlifting, that people see you walk onto the platform, they see you snatch 160, 180 kilos, they see you put these lifts up, and they go, well, like, of course you can do that. Look at how strong he is. And you go, well, hang on. You haven't seen all of the fails that I've done in the gym. You haven't seen all of the hours that have had to go into it. Of course, and that's that's the thing about any sport when you're putting the the limelight and you have to perform for that one moment and no one sees the the backstory and everything, the sacrifices and stuff that you go through along that journey. The walking on crutches for eight weeks at the age of 14. All of that stuff. And I mean, like from that moment on, you know, we we went on and I actually ended up missing out on the um, London 2012 Olympics by one kilo. It's heartbreaking for me at the time. One kilo. Yeah, but one, two kilos I missed out on it by. And, you know, it was heartbreaking for me. And again, like you, you learn from that experience and, you know, Jeff went to me, well, you know what, like, why don't we just carry on with the sponsorship deal and you try and qualify from, um, try and qualify for Glasgow 2014. What's, what was that? Is that's that- Commonwealth Games. Yep. So that's like your next biggest thing really in weightlifting to the Olympics. And I guess for me, that moment, that heartbreak, that failure and the disappointment, I still remember how it felt. That was like my catapult to make sure that for the Commonwealth Games, that wasn't going to be the same thing. I wasn't going to miss out on being there. Um, but it kind of worked both ways for me because I made sure that, you know, I stepped up my training, etc., and made sure I hit the qualification total when I did, and it was great. And I went to that competition to take part. That's exactly what I did. And I had no aspiration for anything more than just to be there. Mm. And... That was, again, another big learning curve for me because it made me actually think of the psychological side of how you approach um, competition, performance, and events. And like for me, like like I said, I all I had was the aspiration to be there. I ended up lifting weights that I was capable of um, and finishing in fifth place. And I think, what if I had fucking tried and actually gone into that competition believing that I could win and if I'd lifted out of my skin reached PB heights there probably would have been a good chance that I could have maybe snatched a bronze medal but because I didn't believe that I was going to do any better than just be there that's all that happened do you think that that was an artifact of not making it to 2012 um I that thought process I don't I don't because I'd never been in a position where I was competed in a major championships like that um so but did, you, did, you, did you feel like you'd already accomplished what you wanted to accomplish simply by being there? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, yeah. you know, I think whether I lifted five kilo more, five kilo less, it wouldn't have made any difference to me because I just wanted to be there. Yeah. Because becoming, at the time, getting to the Commonwealth Games was a massive thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to sidetrack a little bit here because I think this is another like valuable thing that I learned from reflection on that was that, like, at points of my career, the things that I thought were of most importance, now I've got older, I've actually realised that they weren't. And like, if I could go back and change or change my thinking, it, it would be that. What sort of stuff? So for example, like I used to hold my body weight down at like 56 kilos or 77 kilos or certain weight categories far longer than I ever should, starve myself, used to live off jelly babies and make myself sick 
so that my body weight wouldn't go up because I had no knowledge of any nutrition in order to break a British under 17 record, Mm -hmm. which in the grand scheme of things means absolutely (laughs) fuck all. No one remembers who won the Youth Olympic Games 100 metre sprint, do they? Yeah. Everyone remembers the senior thing. But at the time, as a kid and growing up, you think it's the most valuable thing on earth and you do anything to achieve it. And just like I did, get just getting to the Commonwealth Games. I think what's interesting there is that perspective is something you naturally get as your frame of reference is wider. And mm. this is for everything, right? Like your first breakup feels like your world's collapsing. Well, maybe yeah. not for you. But <laughs> you know I mean? Like your first breakup feels like your world's collapsing. But 10 years hence, you're like par for the course, like easy come, easy go, so to speak. And you're totally right. I can remember playing cricket and I got accepted to play for Durham Academy. And for me, like I got to warm up the Australian team when they were playing at Durham against England. Mm. So I got to bowl against Ricky Ponting and like some of the best players on the planet. And I remember thinking like, this is like the pinnacle of like what I can achieve. I'm like, you're not even on the strip. You're like in the nets. You're in the nets in the arse end of the stadium. And but at the time you've got that do you know what I mean? You're so you're so overwhelmed by the experience. Mm. And you know, I think for young athletes, any young athletes that are listening, I, I like what you said at the beginning, which was that you you expanded that dom- what your perceived domain of competence to be global. That it was like, okay, I don't just need to be as good as the people in my town or in my region or in my country or even in like my continent. I need to be, if I want to be the best in my sport, I need to be the best, period. And I think what's interesting is that there's still little artifacts of that that are percolating through. And obviously for someone who has made it to the top of the sport, it's interesting to hear that they are still subject to the same kinds of cognitive biases and, uh, and thought processes that a lot of people will. Hmm. They sell themselves short of their own, yeah, of off their own, own talent. Yeah, and off your own expectation. And, I mean, going on from that, like I said, that being a like quite a big point, I guess, in my sport or realisation of myself and actually having, like, maybe even a thought about psychological process. Because prior to that, I, I think there's no way that sitting with a psychologist and talking about... Um, scenarios etc could ever make me lift any more weights well when when your nutrition the zenith of your nutrition is jelly babies yeah. like psychological training is probably not top of no, the list but as a kid you, there was no support I mean there's very little in weightlifting and I mean up to that point um, the men's team had had very slim amount of funding up to the Commonwealth Games and afterwards it stopped and after the Commonwealth Games half the team retired they stopped because there was like there's no way that I can continue training this hard, etc. And, and like I said, I was training um, six days a week and it would be, three of them would be two, three sessions a day and the other ones would be one, two sessions a day. So, you know, racking up at least like nine to 12 sessions um, a week, you commit your whole life to it. And the, the guys were a little bit older than me and they were like, 24 now, I need to go and get a job, a job and earn money because... This isn't paying me anything. And they end up quitting. But for me at that point, it was like, I'm not going to let the fact that I'm not getting any money stop me from wanting to achieve my dream of going to the Olympic Games. And that's, again, like my second, like I say, most valuable thing that I'd say is like, if there's any obstacles, regardless of whether it's 
in sport, in life. There's always a way around them or a solution. You've just got to be that, I guess, pig-minded to want to be able to go and solve it. And a lot of people give up that really quickly. I think this is like we're going back to saying about traits of a good sportsman or a good athlete. They don't give up that easy. They go and find a solution to the Isn't it strange that stubbornness is a virtue sometimes? Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> like, of course. But like, yeah, great in a sporting act, sporting situation in a relationship. Probably bad in a relationship. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. Swings around that. Um, so yeah, Commonwealth Games is gone, um, and now we're two years out from the Olympic Games, and obviously, um, that was well and truly then my next biggest focus. And don't the whole way through this, like I said, Jeff's still there supporting me with various bits and bobs. And it got to the point where I was about 15 kilos off after the Commonwealth Games, what I would need to do in order to qualify for the Olympic Games. And the last two years prior to that, I'd probably put like maybe four or five kilos on my total each year. So very small amount. Yeah, tiny amount. Um, so it was going to be difficult to sort of reach that. And I had to look at things. And like I said, my training was bang on. I was working super hard in the gym. All of that was good. But I had to look at things outside of just what I did in the gym that could potentially help me with my performance. And that's when I started to look at nutrition, start look at um, psychology, start looking my lifestyle, sleep, lifestyle, recovery, all of these other aspects. And what I like to see it as like a spider's web um, of my life and that could potentially contribute to uh, my performance. And um, I looked at, um, I guess we'll talk firstly about psychology because we're kind of on that. And um, like I said, as a kid, I had no belief at all that some guy could help me actually improve. Mm -hmm. But I started working with this psychologist, one, my friend's dad, Martin Fricker, and two, David Riedel. Um, And they're both of the same school as sort of the Steve and Steve Peters, is it? Chimp Paradox, etc., and um, I guess the key things that I'm going to extract that they that helped me with my lifting, one was developing a process um, for when I'm lifting. So a routine that I go through every single time before I lift in order to develop consistency and also to be able to carry over any performance that I did in training into an environment like a major championships. Because commonly you see athletes that can do bang, bang, bang in the gym, put them on a platform and go, do something different or lose their rhythm and don't actually deliver on the day. So they taught me to help and develop a process. Um, and the second thing was only like worrying about the things that I could control. Like, so again, like outcomes weren't, they're just byproducts of whatever the process was. So um, I guess those two things about going into too much depth really helped me. Can you, can you explain what your process is? Yeah. Before you do a lift. Okay, yeah. And this is something that's really independent to everyone. And I think the sooner you become aware of your individual process, the better chance you've got then of obviously being consistent. So for me, I pace up and down the bar, backwards and forth. I stand back behind the bar and I what I like to call my think box. So this is where I'm thinking about the two the technical side of things that my coach has taught me, whether it's to stay over, keep the bar close, etc. My technical cues there, and I visualize myself. Um, this is always a good question because people always ask this: Do you visualize watching myself or 
in my own body. Yeah. yeah. So I visualised watching myself do it and um, executing the lift and it being a great lift. And um, yeah, so after that, then um, I approached the bar and that's when my like, that's my trigger then to just go through my routine. So my routine is always right hand first, then left hand. And then I set my feet, I shake my arms, I get my breathing controlled. And then I set my, I start counting then three, five, four, three, two, one, mutter it very quietly under my breath. When I hit one, I lock in and go. And for me, like, cause I always used to have that issue, which a load of probably the listeners will as well. And anyone anyway, does weight of thing. Um, right before you come off the floor, you think, fuck, this is going to be heavy. <laughs> or yeah, well you laugh because you know exactly what I'm going on about. And that doesn't change whether you're an Olympic athlete or it's your first day. Yeah. You go, fuck, this can be heavy, or I might hurt myself here. But again, the negative outcomes, like, of whatever your process is. And for me, just by counting down before I lift and going, like, one, like a gunshot at a race, it distracts your mind from thinking about those negative thoughts. So that worked really well for me. Um, so, yeah, that's... that's and that's the same for both snatch and clean and jerk? Yeah. Okay. And what about... Because I've always, I've always wondered this. Once you count to one and once the movement has begun, do you just let the training kick in in the same way as a boxer doesn't think too much? But there must be a point in snatch. I can see that it's one more fluid movement. Yeah. There must be a moment once you've cleaned the bar and then you stand up. You did the exact same thing, but a shorter version of it. So I get out the top of my clean, my foot comes in, feel the weight of my heels. Three, two, one, bang. So it's exactly the same thing broken to that's awesome yeah that's a lovely little framework for people to use and it sounds so stupid that i've stepped up to the bar like in workouts or even like going for max lifts and i've just like a- approached the bar like gripped it hoped mm-hmm. for the best but i don't have a i don't have a process no. and that's why you won't get consistency yeah again to draw this back i feel like i'm talking about a sport i haven't played for nearly 10 years now cricket an awful lot today but it's the best analogies that i can find and for that, you can imagine as a bowler runs in, so you've got a bowler who's running in from the back of his run-up, especially if it's a fast bowler, you've got five seconds from when this guy sets off until like when he hits the crease mm. and releases the ball. And during that time, a lot uh, you've got an awful <laughs> lot of time to think. Time, yeah, and you like you end up getting trapped within your own thoughts. Mm. And that's the last thing that you want, especially when you're talking about someone who's pitching a ball 80, 85 miles an hour. If you think... You you don't have time to react. You need to mm. allow whatever your movement is to just carry through yeah. and just have the the essences of where the fielders are positioned, how you know he typically bowls, what the what the pitch is going to be like, all of the little things that come through. You need to still have those in your mind, but not consciously. But this it's interesting that you 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 draw the comparison because you have to remember in weightlifting, like sorry, in, in cricket, in football, you're action is a reaction of something else whereas obviously in weightlifting you it's not the same total controllable yeah a total control so you initiate the movement when you want to and it's there's definitely a difference there in terms of you having that split second to make a decision yeah whereas like for weightlifting you're just executing that process the same as in a in a golf swing and that's what i love about um individual sport and like being like I guess the only one 
there and spotlight on you because at the end of the day, it's down to you then as to whether it's a good lift, a bad lift or the execution. And, you know, you can have a great performance one day and you know, okay, there's other people involved, like support teams, etc. but it's down to you. And if you have a shit there, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's strange. It's both, it's both liberating and terrifying to think that if you've lifted, if you've snatched 180 kilos before in the gym, you can snatch 180 kilos on the platform. There's no reason why you can't, which puts the power firmly in your hands, but it also means that the failure's in your hands as well. Mm. And I think that it must be for the guys that are at the top level of the sport and the same for CrossFit. Like, especially with when you look at stuff like regionals, mm. um, they release the regionals events in advance. The athletes will have tested the events at home. They know exactly how fast they can go. They may have even done a practice weekend where they've gone, okay, we're going to go back to back to back. This is the timings. This is the... But this is quite easy for me to, to answer that, that thing because this is the thing that people don't really take notice of when you talk about someone's performance in competition versus their performance in training. When you're in training, you've slept in your own bed the night before. You've woken up and eaten out your same cereal bowl you're used to hmm. eating from with your same cereal. You're lifting with your favourite bar, with your favourite plates on your favourite platform. And you've got your favourite coach there with you, watching you train. And that is your ideal environment to perform. And I, that's why I don't think, I think everyone's different in terms of like, you know, what competition can bring out of you. You know, some people do their best in competition, some, but there's, I don't think it's necessarily um, a surprise that people sometimes perform best in their own environment. Because when you travel to, say, Berlin, sleep in a hotel, maybe get woken up by the cars that you're not used to, go down to breakfast and there's shit food there, etc. Um, regardless of whether you've done the workout or not before, you're not in your best environment to perform. And it's only the real top athletes that can rep- replicate as much of what happens at home in the com- when they travel for competition mm-hmm. that really perform. So you go back to controllables and uncontrollables to a degree that you said is the second part of, of your mental strategy. And you're totally right that... I've said it must feel terrifying and liberating in the same degree. But as you say, if you take everything back to the process and you grease the groove and you have a plan and you stick to the plan and the plan is, I I know that I perform best when I eat these kinds of foods, pack them in your bag. Like I know that I need to have silence when I go to a hotel room, pack some earplugs. Those are controllables. Yeah. And this is the, the, follow on from this story is going to be quite funny for you now so um i've identified all these things what i need for competition etc my best stuff etc um down to my nutrition started working with a nutrition company and had my food prepped etc and there's good bits and bad bits of that but carrying on from what we're actually discussing so I know what I need to perform, my weightlifting suit, etc., my boots, prep everything. So whenever I go to a competition, it's all there, exactly how I had it, practiced it in training. Yeah. And six months before the qualifiers now for Rio 2016, I've gone away and done all it, sorted out my nutrition, sorted out my sleep recovery. I lived like a Mormon for six months did went to bed the same time every single day for six months ate the same thing every single day for six months didn't have a drop of alcohol didn't socialize like 
It's a very monastic lifestyle. Yeah, isn't it? turn, turn myself into a robot. Turn myself into a robot for the six months. Are, the, are these the sort of sacrifices and beyond that that you need to make to of, get to that? Of level? course, I and you. I mean, even go back into childhood. I can count on one hand how many times I spent kicking a football round in the playground. <laughs> I can count on like all our hands how many holidays I missed out on parties I didn't go to because. Like for me, there was much more bigger things at like the age of 16. Okay. Maybe I hadn't like tried a drug and like done all the things that, you know, those 16 year old, but I traveled to like maybe like majority of the continents of the world and seen like 15 places, which at like 16 years old, not many people get the opportunity to do. And that was for me more important than those things. So it swings and roundabouts. I wouldn't say like you're hard done by, but there's other things, you know, I think what you're doing is you are. You've chosen your values at an early age, which not a lot of young people can do. You've decided what is of value to you and what virtue and integrity with that value percolating through looks like. And you've gone, okay, I'm going to get after it. Mm. Like I'm not going to allow um, social norms or what I should be doing at this particular age to dictate how I, oh, yeah, exactly. how I, how I need to behave. Exactly. And again, we come back to the stubbornness and the pigheadedness and kind of the... the um, desire to chase what you feel is your own your own path and it in this sense yeah it's absolutely a virtue Mm. you know it can be a nightmare for a parent trying to bring a child up who's got this sense of uh, like direction and idea because they're not going to compromise and it can be a you know a nightmare in a relationship it can be there's a whole host it swings and roundabouts again but you know if you want to be a good athlete and you don't compromise on things like it's probably a pretty fucking good foundation to start yeah so going back to like what I was saying, like so the six uh the six months have gone, it's now competition day of the qualifiers for the Rio twenty sixteen Olympics. Like my my day of reckoning, D Day, whatever you want to call it. Now I'd had special weightlifting shoes done that were black and gold that made. I'd had special Nike weightlifting suit that was black and gold. I had like a Nike tracksuit that had like my special logo stitched into it. Brand new pants, brand new socks, everything snap back, black and gold. Like You sound like a baller. Yeah, I was like, but this is exactly how I'd been envisaging it for yeah. months. This is my day and this is how it's gonna go. So yeah. all of this prepped and ready to rumble. Mm-hmm. And um Anyway, Jeff's can pick me up in his car, just like we planned, and we're driving up to the competition. And um, Where's the competition? It's in Coventry. And um, we're about an hour away, I guess, from the venue now. And um, I'm watching the competition on the live stream, like just seeing how my friends and people were getting on. And um, the guy the guys walked out and I thought, oh, he's got a similar weightlifting suit to me. And it was just as I had that thought, I went, no. And I was at Jeff, pull the car over, mate. I need to check my kit bag. Went in the back of the car. Bearing in mind, I've done 60, 70 competitions plus, big major competitions at this point. I left my weightlifting shoes and my weightlifting suit at home. To the biggest day of my life, to something I've thought about every single day for six months. And I was like, fuck. Like, we were too far away because we would have missed weigh-in to go back. Mm-hmm. Had to end up getting Jeff's wife to bring up one of his old weightlifting suits. And my coach just so happened to have one of my old pairs of weightlifting shoes in his car. So going from, like, the most prepped I'd ever been mm-hmm. to exactly how this day was going to go, to all of a sudden, like, spanner thrown in the works, like, my suit's not there. But do you know what? 
and this is why like when people ask me do you, are you stereotypical about anything now or in competition I'm not because for me I learned from that day that it regardless of what happens if you prepared well enough for something like you could have stuck me in a pink tutu that day and I would have still lifted the same because I was that prepared for the competition so I've rocked up dusted these boots off got my suit on weighed in and the competition began now it was a there's a really good clip on YouTube um, of the Dean will make sure that the link is here or here of the Somewhere. actual um, of the actual fight for the qualification between me and um, another weightlifter called Owen Boxall really good lifter so and, you must have um, known going in that it was going to be between you two for this well for my weight category definitely and then my best friend who was in a lightweight category Gareth Evans was also in the mix but it's done. it was done like points and um, but I knew I had to be Owen like minimum requirement and um, notoriously when me and Owen have competed it's been very like back and forth as to like I win he win etc he always used to snatch more than me mm-hmm. um, but I used to always clean jerk more than him so the snatch comes first right yeah um, so anyway we've gone on to um, gone on through the snatch and I've ended up um beating Owen by like quite a few, I think it was like two kilos in the snatch which is like unheard of and I was like boy this great start perfect snatch at 153 I think and um, I was like that's it I've done this pretty much and uh, Owen's opener was like 175 my opener was like 185 and I was thinking like one like I easily opened on 185 so I thought I'm like 10k on the openers and his opener's gone up Fair play, and then he's come out on like one eighty two, which is like his PB. I thought, poor. What for his second lift? No, for his first lift. I thought, fair play, he's going for it, and he came out and he did it. Fair play, mate. I come out, did my one eighty five, and put like four kilos ahead now. Mm -hmm. And then he's gone like one eight (laughs) nine, and I'm I was going one ninety anyway, so I thought, yeah, no problem, whatever. Yeah, and um, he's come out and done one eight nine, so he's like ahead now again on body weight. I think bastard. Shit the bed. So now my second lift, then I've hit 190 and I thought, oh, that's it now. There's no way like, he's got <laughs> another lift in him. And sure enough, he comes out 193 and makes it. He's made a 12 kilo PB on his final lift. <laughs> and he's like, for some reason, the way the numbers were, I thought that didn't matter that he got 193. I thought I was still in the lead. Yeah. And like, I'm in the back, like, chilling like this. I don't even need to do my last lift of one. And my coach comes out and he goes, so you need to make this lift. You need 193. And I was like, no, nah, no, nah, put 194 on. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you only need 193. Put 194 on, no problem. And I put my hat on and I've spammed my hat back round. Because I'd taken my hat off because I always lift my sat back. Mm-hmm. Put back on and off I went out. Like, nothing had phased me. And, like, everyone is, like, on the edge of their seats, like... And it was for like a British record. And I've come out and I've cleaned the weight, 194. As I'm standing out of it, I threw up in my mouth. Why? Swallowed, I don't know, just swallowed it down and then just nailed the jerk. And it was like, that was the only way that day was going to go. Like, <laughs> regardless of the scenario. And this is what I say, like, when you prepare for something that well, it, it didn't matter. That was the outcome for me for that day. And wrong kit, wrong shoes. Didn't matter. All of the worry before, all the anxiety before, thrown up in your mouth. 
<laughs> Some guy's lifted his 12 kilo PB, yeah. but because you've greased the groove that hard and yeah. because you've done the work, you're able to trust the process. Yeah. And the outcome's almost inevitable. Mm. And uh, yeah, and then that was me on my, on my way to Rio. Get on your fucking way to Rio. Yeah. That's amazing. Are you allowed to lift in a snapback? I was the first person to start doing it. And Cause I saw you I'll lift- explain my reasoning for doing it because initially when I started doing it, a lot of the weightlifting community were like, that's really bad, you shouldn't do that, it's disrespectful. But mm. for me, you watch weightlifting, a guy walks out, he lifts his weight, mm. makes some sort of celebration sometimes, and walks back out the back. You get no understanding or connection to that person as an athlete as a performer it's going back to like we say you don't see all that stuff that goes back mm. whereas like I love what I do and I want to show a little bit of my personality a little bit of my charisma when I'm lifting so like yeah a signature yeah so this is me this is me snap back a bit of me and instantly when you see that you get like a little inkling oh, that's, the guy that, that's the guy that wears the snapback about that person just for seeing the red snapback yeah. And that was my reasoning for doing it. And yeah, it made me feel comfortable when I did it. And I didn't care that people didn't like the fact that I wore it. Mm. It was me and, you know... It's cool that um, it's cool that it, it, it's allowed in the... It's counted as part of your body. So if the bar was to touch it or if it was to fall off, it'd be a no lift. Okay. But yeah, it, it is what it is. And like nowadays, you'll see... There used to only ever be like... When I started, one type of weightlifting shoe, they would be the same color. Mm. There'd be one weightlifting suit. So everyone's in the same suit, the same shoes, coming out lifting a bar the same, boring as shit. Yeah? <laughs> it's different now because of CrossFit. Yeah, there is like multiple different weightlifting suits, multiple different shoes. So if you do have any sort of inkling of fashion sense, you could put together something that almost looks like a planned outfit. Yeah. So it's different and maybe, but like, yeah, that was, that was my reasoning for doing it. That's cool. I think it's really, uh, it's really interesting. I've got, for the listeners at home, Johnny, who is a nationals level powerlifter, was making me laugh the other day as he said that he couldn't believe in powerlifting that when you deadlift, your socks aren't allowed to touch your knee sleeves. If your socks touch your knee sleeves... That used to be a rule in weightlifting. Three red, three red lights. And yeah, to change that. Yusuf once got three red lights on a lift for putting his one foot on the platform, like on the corner of the platform, basically off camera, before his clock had started. Like just yeah. had his foot, you know, like resting your foot. Had but his there's foot. all those sorts of rules in weightlifting as well that, okay. you, would, that you wouldn't know but about. for some, like somehow having a hat has like... Yes, subverted that, well, that the reason thing. yeah how it does is because they changed the rules only a few years back so that Muslims could female Muslims could compete in weightlifting ah so they can wear the is it the hijab yeah so that they could wear that so that they had to class then any headwear as part of the body which is then how <laughs> wearing a snapback <laughs> give me the snapback <laughs> I'm taking this a little bit but that's how wearing a snapback is yeah, you're allowed to. That's funny. So roll it forward to Rio. Yeah, wow. So I guess going there, like going back and talking about kicking out, I guess, because for me as a kid, like as an athlete representing your country, getting your kit is like one of the proudest moments ever. And um, it is one hell of an experience. Like, I'd, always, I'd heard stories about people that had been to the Olympics um, about what kicking out is like. And... Um, I was like, 
like kidney candy store basically I've been to the Commonwealth one but it's never the same as like what the Olympics are because they absolutely go nuts for the Olympics <laughs> like, so you go into this big hall as the NEC and uh, you have a personal shopper and you go through like different sections so you start off with like formal wear and you've had like this suit made for you with like you know um, the Olympic crest on etc and every detail of it has got like really individual to you and we wore that when we met like um princess anne and any royalty you wore your suit you get these cool shoes and then you go into like village wear and then this is stuff that you wear around the village i mean it's stacks and stacks of stuff right? <laughs> um you get like wet weather gear for like rio and it, we did actually need it in the end but like um just senseless for any of stuff. possible scenario and then you go into like um training wear yeah. and then footwear what were you then, most excited about um probably the trainers of the footwear like it was all like the the weird sort of thing there's a few jumpers and stuff that I'd seen um I can't remember what I'd say my certain top was my favorite piece that we got but um you you get so much stuff and yeah you get your accessories but then the final bit is quite personal because you imagine like I was the only male weightlifter going and there was one other female going so when it comes to making what they what you perform in they're essentially making you an outfit for your biggest day of your life. And it's just you that's going to have that. Mm-hmm. So obviously for a weightlifter, you weightlifting suit and you go into this waiting room for a minute and they um, have like a, um, a mannequin <laughs> of, you know, just normal. Is it your, is it your dimensions? Obvious. Because you are not, you are not the shape. traditional no, dimensions. They have of a person. Man- yeah. So they have a mannequin of a human. And it's like a big reveal. You got walked through, and there's your lifting suit on. A like when you get a new like, car, and they pull the yeah, the drape oh, and back. they've made it just for you. And they're so proud of it because obviously they've done it from scratch to be like for you. And it mm-hmm. it was really cool. And you do like some photos and stuff, and then you go through because Audi sponsored it. Mm-hmm. So then you take all of your stuff onto the, the bags, the suitcases. I got like six bags, like different suitcases and bags, and all of this stuff. And um, that was very special. And um, that's when I guess it starts to feel real that you're going. You kick in big style then. Yeah. And then um, the next thing was the holding camp in um, Bella Horizonte. And bearing in mind, like I said, as a weightlifter, you have like no, no one really cares about weightlifting. It's not <laughs> a very popular, famous sport. Um, there's very little funding for it, etc. And all of a sudden you're flown out to this purpose built place or like fitted out place for Team GB's preparation for the Olympics. And we get to the airport and it's like, get on this bus, just three of us, three of us, two weightlifters and a coach on this bus. And it's like an eight police motorcycle escort through Bella Horizonte, shutting roads for us as we're going through. Like we're celebrities are like really Fucking important. Donald Trump's just arrived Yeah, in <laughs> yeah Rio, like that. Yeah. And that was like weird because like I said, all of a sudden we're now just as important as the sprinters or the boxers and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And you get to this hotel, nice hotel. Again, normally we'd get put in the shittest hotel you could <laughs> find. And you've basically got these people there that are there for you for whatever, anything you could possibly think or want. There's a physio full time, there's a doctor, there's recovery people, nutritionists, sleep helpers, and all sorts of stuff. They'll get you whatever you could possibly want. And it's really weird, because like I said that, and I was always told that don't do anything that you don't do at home. So obviously I'd never had any of that at home. So like you kind of just don't make them 
don't use it, you do what you used to and eat what you used to and stuff. But uh, cocoa pups, please. Yeah, exactly. Like they're coming over with like caviar. Yeah, bottle of cocoa pups. All right. Yeah. Just to interject there, do you think that there is a? It definitely sounds like there's a disparity between the level of support that's given to you at anywhere which isn't the Olympics mm. and then yeah. at the Olympics. There's like this Pareto distribution of like nothing, yeah. nothing, nothing. Bang. Everything. Yeah. And it's overwhelming. And it's like going back to what you said about it being like in competition scenarios. It's all of these things. It's all of a sudden overwhelming. Like you go to training while we were there and they've got 15 cameras pointing at you. It's flashing while you're training. Mm. I was like, this is like... Did you want to be back in the church? No, I was kind of loving it a bit. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, this was sick. So you could embrace it and take it as your power, right? Yeah, well, it was nice to feel like important that people wanted to come and have photos of you and like interview you and stuff like that. And it was. Do you think that says a lot about your personality that you almost took energy from that? Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't have said like necessarily energy that would have caused me to compete or perform any better, but I'd say it made me feel special and you know proud of what I'd achieved um, but at the same time very draining like, and the point from the qualifiers to that to the actual Olympic Games was very small in weight it was a six week window and this is the thing with our sport I went balls to the wall to qualify that there's no way no matter who you are can you hold that level of performance for six weeks mm-hmm. without your body falling apart you have to taper and I tried to hold that standard of lifting there up to like what I did the qualifiers, but it's just no chance. I was in, I was on more sleeping tablets, painkillers, everything you could imagine just to be able to lift. And we've flown down to the village now about two weeks out from uh, lifting. And I just said to myself, we went in the village, I said, I don't, regardless of what happens on the day, you've got to remember this experience and that day. Like, as the best day of your life because you're never going to get that opportunity again and that regardless of whether you go to the Olympics again that one day you've got to live with that for the rest of your life so I want to make sure I enjoyed it so I just said that to myself and I kind of like took a little bit of pressure off myself in terms of what my training and stuff was going like um, and then we went um, into the village and it's like you hear the stories about the Olympic village yeah and, damn right this yeah. is what everyone's tuned in for yeah but it's like <laughs> it's not like that well, either, either that or it wasn't I missed out were or you I, in the wrong <laughs> you were in the wrong area right no like, I don't think I was but it just like it didn't seem like that about what everyone sort of in, imagined so we went on to um, got into the village and obviously that like, I was just the only weightlifter, male weightlifter. Mm-hmm. But like everyone else is like a team of hockey players, a team of sevens, a team of like athletics. And it's just the weightlifter and like standard, like the weightlifters are just like... <laughs> Put in the corner. Yeah, because I'm well, not winning any medals. So. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they were like, right, do you want to go and share a room in with the ping, pool, uh, uh, ping pong, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, <laughs> table tennis guys, or you can share with the gymnast lads. And I was like, oh, I know a couple of the gymnast lads from the Commonwealth. I'll stay with them. They go, that's fine. You'll have your own room, but you're in the cleaners, like, cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> fine. <laughs> My okay. room was probably about this big. It was absolutely fine. I walk in and Max Whitlock is in there doing his stretches on the floor. Like, um, he comes straight up. He's like, how are you doing? Took a bag in my room. And um, we all just, like, clicked just like that. So it was me, 
Max Whitlock, Nar Wilson, Brim Bevan, Christian Thomas, Lewis Smith, um, and Nathan Hall. Mm-hmm. And um, Niles just rang you there, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we're all like um, seven lads in an apartment, <laughs> young lads. There's pranks going on. There's super gluing toothbrushes down to tops and all sorts of horrendous stuff, like because just seven lads in an apartment. And they really made me feel like one of their team, like straight yeah. away. Like I'd have team meetings with them. Like I would go for breakfast with them, for dinner with them. That was really nice like, to kind of like gain some routine. Mm-hmm. But definitely for the first week, I was around the village like a fangirl. Like you, so many celebrities everywhere you looked. And you're like, fuck, photo, selfie. Like just these people that you're like, you've only ever seen them on TV. And then all of a sudden they're there eating Cocoa Pops. Like. Yeah. Um, so I was like, wow, basically for the first couple of weeks, took a lot of selfies, met lots <laughs> of famous people. And then who was your, got, who was your favorite person you got a selfie with? Um, I got, I got lots, but I'd say for the reason, I wasn't the most famous, but for me as a kid, obviously growing up playing golf, um, Justin Rose was like a bit of a hero. And, um, we're sat in the queue waiting to get on the bus to go to the opening ceremony. And that's like the big thing there in the ceremony. Like, cause I'd sat as a kid since even way before then and watched the opening ceremony on TV. And then all of a sudden I was in my opening ceremony gear on my way to go to it myself. And I was just got, about to get on the bus and I've seen Justin Rose stood there and I've kind of gone, I've got to go over and ask him for a photo. Like, and I've gone over and asked him for a photo. He's like, yeah, no problem. We had a photo. And then, he just start, started chatting to me. He was like, so what sport do you do? Blah, blah, blah. We ended up getting on the bus together then and sat together for like 45 minutes on the bus. You just and, pinching yourself the whole time. Yeah, and, but like at the same time having the most normal conversation like we are. And um, then he, his, his missus FaceTimes and he's like, oh yeah, I'm just sat here with Sonny. He's a weightlifter. Like, and I'm like, hey, Dustin Rose is missing. <laughs> like, this is weird. Um, and then we, we get off the bus then we're starting to walk in you get like walked around like the houses basically before you parade in because it's all done in country order yeah and um, he started like telling stories then about like um, being on the tour and Tiger Woods and like how they've got houses next to each other in Barbados and all these various stories like golf related stuff and cool just shit. like wow wow no, like, just lapping it up yeah and like Andy Murray's there as well like and a couple of the other tennis guys and um, all of a sudden we're there and we're just about to walk in and I had my phone out like that to like, try and video or take a photo and I was just like no there's no way that you could capture what that experience felt like in in any sort of picture and they, like you know that is one of the most specialist moments ever for me like in my life walking out to that stadium the size of it everyone's looking at you and I managed to get like right on the front row, right next to Andy Murray. So like, all the photos, <laughs> Andy Murray's there with his massive flag, and then I'm there with like, my little paper. <laughs> and it's Do so you think funny. that that's symbolic—the size of your flag and the size of Andy yeah. Murray's flag? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but anyway, so yeah, amazing experience. Like, and you, afterwards, you're like almost like sat up, like. I was going to say, how long did it Buzzing. take to get to sleep after oh, you've been to these yeah, days? I didn't think I did, but after that, like, um, incredible experience. Like, um, and then you're kind of like getting towards um, 
opening uh, competition day. Like I did various acquaintances, like meetings with other athletes then, and I will come back on to Andy Murray because obviously he got asked to be the flag bearer. And um, I guess in the media, Andy Murray comes across like, you know, very emotionless, quite a lot. Some some would say... Stoic, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, he's not like that at all. And I was very fortunate to spend like, sit down and have lunch with him one day when we were at the school and meet him there because we had like a school outside the to go and train. And I got to spend a bit more time listening to him talk and chat. And once he started to talk and, you know, you got to listen to him more. Actually, like, in my opinion, he's just like a little bit socially awkward. And he's by no means like arrogant or, you know, he's just a little bit shy. And like, I think with all of like the, you know, fame and everything he's had, he doesn't find it is easiest to express his emotions. And that was really like, I guess, humbling to see that someone that's that successful and has achieved that much is still like almost a little bit shy. Is it, from do you feel quite endeared to him now? Yeah, definitely. Definitely from that experience. And the same with, you know, Justin Rose, like, and him giving me that, the time of his day, like, knowing, like, how much, you know, I looked up to him as a kid, mm-hmm. to spend time with him and on a level, and the same with Greg Rutherford, mm-hmm. and, like... Triple jumper, right? Triple jumper, Olympic gold medalist, won everything. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'd be sat down for having food, and two days later, Greg would come up and be like, hey, I was training, son, are you good? And it's like, and still now, like, Greg, like, watches my Instagram story, like, every day, and we chat regularly, and it's like... These guys are like superstars, but it makes you realise that they're no different from anyone else. They're like exactly the same as me and you. They've just had a ridiculously <laughs> huge dedication to yeah. whatever they've wanted to achieve. And I, th- I think it's an interesting point there that you talk about to do with the way that the me- that uh, athletes are portrayed in the media. Like you can, through hard work and dedication and natural talent and all the rest of it, become really, really good within a particular discipline. That has no bearing on your capacity to talk to a camera at all. And I think that in this day and age where social media is a transparent window into people's lives and there's such an interest in athletes' private lives, you know, uh, some footballer signs for a different football club the story gets 10,000 retweets. Some footballer cheats on his wife with another wife. It gets 50,000 retweets. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like yeah. everything's become reality TV showized now. Mm-hmm. And people want a narrative that's constantly going on. And you're totally right with the Andy Murray thing. Although I've heard the, you know, that rhetoric like Andy Murray, like miserable Scottish guy. And you think, well, hang on a second. Like, is he? Yeah. Or... What happens if you are not someone who's super comfortable on camera? Yeah. How does that make you come across? Uh, actually, it makes you come across exactly the way that he's coming across. Yeah, exactly. This person has decided, to, uh, chosen to be good at their craft and now has had all of these other demands put on them. And you're like, well, fuck. Like, that, is that fair? Yeah. Like, and now you're judging him you're, ju- well. you're judging him not based on his performance like he's doing good at his performance thing like leave him alone yeah. and yeah I, I think people want the whole package now right mm. like and especially I guess sponsorship money and all the rest of it people buy into the character as much as they do the performance mm. but know? then this is when people go back to me and it's commonly ask questions to sports people what's 
who's your biggest inspiration who's like your idol and for me having been through that experience at the Olympics it's not about now an individual or an individual person it's traits of people that have been inspiring and it's like I said that the way in which you know some of the most successful people in the world are so like humble that for me is an inspirational trait and I find that through more now than a specific performance that anyone's done inspiring it's interesting we were walking into the gym earlier on and there's a guy who you won't know but Nathan Moffat who'll be listening and Nathan was walking out and he's been in Newcastle he was in Newcastle for years he's moved to Australia and his goal is to make it to regionals I think within the next couple of years and he walked out recognised me he said hi to me turned around recognised you shook your hand and he walked away and then turned back and said oh you helped me with my clean over Instagram DMs like a few mm-hmm. months ago thanks for that and you're like oh yeah man like no, cheers no, no problem you know, like one, just one guy. And yeah. I'm aware that, you know, it's not meeting Andy Murray in the Olympic Village, but to the yeah. same extent, it's the same core message, right? And this is, it's exactly that. You've like hit the nail on the head. And this is where like through for me now, when people do send me direct messages, when people do ask for a photo and it's like, it's still weird for like someone in weight, like me getting like that sort of tension. But I do do my hardest to like, you know, even respond if it's the smallest little thing. Because I remember what it felt like having, you know, Justin Rose be like that with me and think that, you know, if I can do that small thing by, you know, offering someone a couple of words of motivation or advice or liking their video and then be jumping up and down for the rest of the day, it cost me nothing. Mm -hmm. But you then are passing that same sort of message on in terms of what you aspire to be like. And that's not to say I've reply to every single message I've ever been sent because it's not realistic. But as much as I can, I always do try to to do that. And it's purely from, you know, having experienced that myself. Good role models to a degree of people who have made it to the top of the sport. Of course, yeah. So what was it like stepping onto the platform then in Rio? Yeah, wow. Like, again... It gives me goosebumps now just <laughs> thinking about the actual... So the tell, me, tell, me, tell me what it looks like. Um, so first off, actually, I want to find out, and I'm sure that some of the people will be interested at home. Um, anyone who follows uh, ATG um, or what's the other one? Hook Grip. Gym, Hook Grip, yeah. Yeah, so both of them, amazing Instagram accounts. You should follow them. They do a lot of backstage stuff, right, at big competitions, and they'll track. If you go on the YouTube channel, they go like dick and balls. They'll go from like empty bar to final warm-up yeah. lift, and they'll track everything yeah. and they'll pop it up. Um, so talk me through your routine. You've packed your bags, you've arrived at the lifting hall. What happens? Um, yeah, so it does really seem like a little bit of a a blur now thinking back, like because that day for me, right from start to finish, I've never felt that way on a competition day. I think because like, you know, like, and it's again, it, it sounds weird because we're talking about um, just another competition, but you've dedicated, you've, we've talked about my whole life today. So you're, you're 11 years deep at yeah, this point. Yeah, but all of that, all the things that we've talked about is funneled to that one moment. <laughs> and it's really hard to kind of encapture how that feels. And I never felt emotional in a competition experience before like that. And it was kind of like really hard to kind of, you know, keep your focus like you would never at any other competition in terms of like your routine, your warm up and stuff, because it was like, I want to remember this and enjoy it and set, take, soak everything in because it's, it's such a special day to me. And like, I know in myself everything that I've sacrificed for that one moment. And I remember 
So you go in, you get weighed in, and then you sit in like a room. What, do you, what category were you in? 94 kilo class, B group. Okay. Um, and you, there's a room out the back that has like loads of drinks and food and stuff. And I had my food and went to put my weightlifting suit. And um, again, which is like quite special, unpeeling your suit. I pull mine on, it just rips in half right in my fucking hands. Like. <laughs> but luckily I bought a second one. Pff, second one's on fine. Like, so I ripped my suit in half. <laughs> Um, and you go into the warm-up room and like you get given your platform and we had a few photos and stuff. And like, I had this grin on my face that like I just couldn't get rid of. Like I was just so <laughs> Fuck off. fucking yeah. happy. I, like my cheeks hurt by like the mo- from the moment I woke up till like that whole day, that's that smile and grin just did not leave my face. And um we've got to um, now you're obviously in the warm-up room and then you get called for presentation, which is kind of like, right, this is it. Like, competition's about to start. And I remember coming out, walking out and them saying, Sunny Webster, Great Britain. And like, I, it was so hard not to cry. Like, and I still remember it now, like thinking like, don't cry. This is like, <laughs> this is they, really so, so many people are watching. Don't cry, don't cry. And I kind of like held it back and was like, you know, because you know, like, so many people are sat there watching who know you, and it's like, and then, like, you know, I looked up, and Jeff's in the crowd, came flat to Rio to watch me, and another friend of mine, Susie, was there, like, who came out to watch, who's, again, known me since I was young in my career, and, you know, it was a real special moment, and you go back in, then afterwards, and you have to kind of, like, try and throw that away, and just be like, right, you're here to perform and lift, but it's so difficult. That's a that's a good point. Just before you go on, I'm going to interject. Do you think that the um, the ability to think outside of yourself and soak the situation in is contrary to focusing on the greased groove of the movements? It seems to me like soaking the situation in by its very virtue is going to take you out of that routine, take yeah. you away from what you're used to doing. In every every other situation, but in every other competition other than the Olympics, yes. But I think that is the most difficult <laughs> one to do, especially in like, you know, as your, as your first Olympics. But even people say to me that have been to multiple, like, that I know what to expect the next, if I was to ever go to the Olympics again, what <laughs> that's going to be like. And you can kind of, kind of prepare for that a little bit. But even people that have been multiple times said that like, everyone's different. Fucked, and it's, yeah. yeah, you're always fucked. It's Olympic <laughs> Games. It's like the biggest... Biggest stage sport. in the world, right? So, yeah, I think like it does to a degree. Um, but I had to kind of put that to one side and remember that I was there to lift. But you've got to remember as well, I'd had the worst couple of weeks training up to this event. And like I kind of just warmed up and, you know, I tried my hard. And like the coaches said to me, they said, do you want to bring your weights down? And, you know, just go through some easy lifts. And I was like, I haven't trained my whole life to come here and sandbag myself and look back on it and think I could have lifted more. I would rather have tried my hardest and, you know, got one lift and said, well, at least I went balls to the wall. I just didn't make it. And that's yeah. exactly what I did. Yeah. And I stuck to my plan. I went out and I made one snatch and then missed my net. No, I think I missed my opening snatch. Got my second. And then I missed my third. And then for the clean and jerk, um, I got my first clean and jerk, my second clean and jerk, and then missed my last. But they were like, they were weights I could have done, but like 
every lift, regardless of whether I missed it or made it, I still finished the lift and soaked in and enjoyed <laughs> the experience. And like a lot of people would have looked at it and looked at it upon like, oh, he didn't try hard enough or he, he didn't look like he really cared. But like, for me, and for me, that was a bit annoying because like people don't know what goes into that. But I didn't want to walk off the platform kicking myself and think like, I knew I wasn't in the best shape and I knew I could have gone lighter and sandbagged it. But I now look back on that moment still with a smile on my face and with no regrets. And that's what I wanted to do. So regardless of what, you know, the pub perception was, et cetera, because they don't know all of that stuff that I just said about, you know, my sleep, my body, how my body was, et cetera. Six weeks to taper down and then go You know what I mean? They don't appreciate that. They probably never seen you lift before. They just go, and that's their perception. But fine. I like knowing myself, because at the end of the day, I'm the one who has to live with that day, that I... Well, I tried as hard as I possibly could and I enjoyed every moment of it, every second of it. And I look back on it now with a smile on my face. I retell the story with a smile on my face and I will do again in 20 years' time probably. Um, so, yeah, very special moment. But you kind of go on from that peak, the best day of our life, and then reality's here <laughs> and you're back at home and no one cares. No one's there with the big money pot for you like sponsorship deals checked it's kind of like you get back on with your normal life and all of a sudden you sacrificed your whole life for this one moment and now you're back and it was difficult I think initially because I did feel quite depressed coming back from it and you get those Olympic blues etc and it only wasn't really until um, I started doing the seminars after the Olympics where I kind of found my passion back for the sport again, if you like. Broadly, it's, it sounds like a, a version of PTSD, almost. Yeah. It's like you've gone through such elation that there's a there's like a come down on the other side of it. And yeah, but people talk about it all the time and I think it's genuinely a thing. Olympic blues is a, is a thing. Like the Ibiza blues. <laughs> yeah, I've had them twice this year. <laughs> Um, so let's get on to the seminars now. So, you know, I, I, that's how I got to know you was through your lifting online, through the, you call it circus lifting? Yeah, it's kind of been branded that now. Um, I don't know if it's a substitute. Um, I guess for me, the circus lifting came about because I watch a lot of weightlifting online. I follow a lot of weightlifting accounts and I don't know, like, it's going to be a surprise but I find it boring as shit watching people just posting a snatch weight and I can't imagine how even more boring it is for someone who has no understanding they're not invested in the sport yeah but no like understanding of the weight and how heavy it is mm-hmm. you watch some you know I get now that a crazy dude come out and snatch 190 and you're just like fuck mm. and that's it well I mean as a, another example to bring it back to ATG or uh, hook grip they'll have on their Instagram, they'll have one video at like a hundred frames a second. Mm. And obviously the reason that they do that is so that the technical experts can see just how close the pull is to their legs, just how much they dip under the bar, et cetera, et cetera. But regardless, even the normal speed videos, it's 10, 1500 guys on there all snatching weights, the exact same lift. To me, that's a bit boring. Whereas like for me, I'm like, oh fuck it. Let's jazz things up a bit. Like, do something a bit crazy, add a bit of a complex together, and it just gives someone something 
different to watch other than the same shit, the same two lists. Mm -hmm. Dean will make some of these appear as we are talking around the screen. Thank you, video guy Dean. Um, so yeah, that's how the surface lifting came about. Um, so it's got, for people who haven't seen it or who are watching it, what's going on around the screen, around our heads at the moment? What's it's happening? me sticking various different movements, lists together um, until basically I run out of energy. <laughs> but it kind of shows like, a, I guess, a real control of the bar and understanding of the technique in order to be able to do that. It's extremely difficult to do. And if please don't try it at home because you'll probably hurt yourself <laughs> um, as people have done yeah so that is it is essentially that but I think like as well and I missed a massive chunk of my story out because um, I have actually done a degree in sports performance of Olympic weightlifting okay um, which I missed out I was studying at Bath University during um, I guess that time when I was trying to qualify for the Olympics mm -hmm. which I completely missed out but did four years at university purely at Bath on sports performance Olympic weightlifting. And that's an incredibly specialized sports performance for Olympic weightlifting. Yeah. So what you do at Bath is everyone in my class was either international at their sport of six Olympians in my class and I had a class of only 36 people. So everyone was national, international at their sport and, um, very set group. You do the course based around your individual sport. So there was, for example, a rhythmic gymnast in my class. So who went to the Olympics in 2012. She did her course around rhythmic gymnastics. So we do different sectors. So for example, nutrition, she'd do nutrition for rhythmic gymnastics. I'd do nutrition for everything. There'd be a psychological um, aspect and you relate everything back to your sport and do all your dissertation, etc. your um, studies. What was your dissertation on? What was your title? Um, the efficacy of caffeine in power-based sports. So, and how how effective is it? Um, yeah, but it is effective. Obviously, um, higher doses for um, power-based sports. So I was I was talking. I was looking at like real high doses. So we were looking like six hundred um, to eight hundred milligrams of caffeine. We were using, which is what people. like about 12, 15 cups of coffee, something like that. Yeah, a lot. So, did you see yeah. this? Did you see the study that happened at Northumbria University where yeah, someone accidentally someone got given like ten grams of yeah. of uh, no, it's fifty grams instead of fifty milligrams. Yeah, someone got given fifty grams of caffeine, or two of them, and they had to be shipped yeah. off to the RVR. Yeah. So I was doing that, and during that time, I was training throughout the day. I'd go home, eat, get in my car at like nine o'clock at night, drive to university, which was an hour away from Bristol study 10 till 3, 4 in the morning, drive home, sleep for three hours, and then do it again, train. So, for how long? Uh, well, last there for four years, so I had you in term time of that time. Yeah, yeah it's mental. I didn't do a lot of sleeping. <laughs> but, um, That's crazy. Trying to juggle training with that was extremely difficult. So yeah, I kind of like sidetracked a bit there, but I missed that out. But um, going back to what we were saying about um, the circus lifting, the coaching, like, that's kind of like, I guess, adds a little bit to, you know, what I do now in terms of delivering the seminars, coaching people, helping people with their techniques, etc. I've done the theory side of it as mm -hmm. well, as much as... You drilled yourself into the ground with that, right? Yeah. So now you're, as you move forward, coaching people, I know that you're going and doing these seminars where you've got between groups of, what, 10 and 50? What's the, biggest, yeah. what's the biggest seminar that you've done so far? I've probably had 40 people once, but like for me, ideally, 
20 people is a really good number because any more than that, I don't feel like I'm giving each person any personal attention. And I like everyone, my seminars are just as much about having fun as they are about learning. Mm-hmm. So for me, like I want to try and make sure that everyone leaves that day with individual technical pointers, but also feeling like they've met and hung out and spent time with me and got to know me as a person. I've been seminars before where there's 50, 60 people and you may even not get one direct person from one direct word from the person that you've paid to go and see. So yeah, I think for me, um, yeah, I think that's, uh, so is your goal, your goal at the moment, as you move forward, obviously you're having a, for anyone who doesn't know, we will make sure that Sonny's dates for his tour in October. October. And you're beginning in October and finishing in January. January yeah. Going that way around that way around the the world, sorry. Yeah. Um, through Doha and Australia and finishing New in Miami. Zealand, yeah. Um broadly beyond that, beyond going and I guess accessing as many people as you can up to this twenty ish limit. Where do you see your career going from that? Is that sufficiently fulfilling for you? Or are you eyeing up trying to take some young blood and get them to the yeah, highest I level think, of the sport? Or I think for me, like like I said, I've dedicated 12, 13 years of my life solely to being a competitive athlete. And you sacrifice so much, like I said already, in that process. I'm 24 years old now and there's a lot of things that I've missed out on and things that, you know, not that I would ever change and go back. I wouldn't. But there's certain things I want to do and live like a bit more of like a normal life. I've been able to travel a lot more this last few years, go on holidays, go to more parties. And, um, you know, I want to spend a little bit more time for myself and focus on business side of things in terms of with my seminars. And, you know, I'm really enjoying at the moment the... um, getting to meet more people, um, building my, I guess... There's very few people out there that provide education for Olympic weightlifting and, you know, want to sort of like become an expert in that field in terms of, you know, wanting to help people um, improve with their lifting. Um, obviously, um, I've made a bit of a, um impact in the CrossFit community in terms of um, giving it a go myself. And obviously, a lot of the gyms I go to coach at are CrossFit gyms. So um, I'm enjoying learning something new. Um, a new challenge it's extremely humbling doing crossfit workouts and sucking at them um because like i said most weightlifting stuff now i've been doing it most of my life i can do it with my eyes closed yeah but make me run a mile and i'm dead so but that's really nice and i'm enjoying that feeling of having to learn a new skill being a novice at something again. yeah and you know applying the skills i learned through weightlifting to something else um so that's enjoyable and i'm not really thinking I guess too much further ahead. As long as I'm happy and I'm enjoying what I'm doing, then that's kind of like the the key main focus for me at the moment. I do have, in terms of aspirations to compete again, um, I don't know 100% yet. I mean, I got out, I wanted to go to the Olympic Games, I did that. One last thing that I haven't done that I wanted to do as a kid was win a Commonwealth gold medal. And there's potential to come back and do that in... Um, in Birmingham in 2022, mm-hmm. um, which is, yeah, potentially something that I may look at nearer the time. So would you be prepared to make the sacrifices to your lifestyle again? Again. To do that? This is the thing, like, and it's a, it's a really good question because 
I I know what it would take to go back and do that. And I think that's kind of good in that respect to know exactly if I wanted to achieve that. Know what you're in for. Yeah, know what I'm in for. Um, And I guess um, I'd have to look at it close to the time. I couldn't definitively say right now that that's a diehard priority of mine. Um, It must be in the back of your mind though. 100%. It's in the back of my mind and it definitely like features as a as a thought as something that I've kind of a stone that I've one of the stones I've left um but at the same time weirdly over the last I guess six months more I guess attention and aspirations has gone to maybe wanting to compete in the CrossFit Games or mm-hmm. like um especially after coming back from regionals and watching the atmosphere of the competition and the sacrifice those guys put in to what they do is it's out of a challenge but again like I know what sort of training and dedication it will take mm-hmm. to reach that sort of level of sport and until I'm in a situation where with the best coach with the best training partners um, I'm 100% focused to that goal I'm not going to do it half-heartedly I'd quite rather just enjoy what I'm doing it sounds like a common theme that's sort of come about through this has been a, a single-mindedness for your, you've understood where, broadly where you're going to one degree. And it's funny that it almost sounds at 24 years old, like you're taking kind of like a semi-retirement. Semi-retirement, like, yeah. Um, where you're just like, okay, like, or, you know, you've done, you did four tours in Afghanistan. Like, I'm going to just give me a break and I'll go back out there. Maybe I've still got the skill set. Like, and it's cool. It's, it's interesting to think that, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if young athletes suffer with burnout. I'm sure that a no, lot of them do. Giving my body a rest as well. Like, it's nice not being in as much pain that I was day in, day out before as I was training. And I, I do have other aspirations outside of sport in terms of business aspirations and other things I want to achieve. Um, you know, so, yeah, there's definitely other things outside of sport for me there. What would you need to, what would your total need to be, do you think, ish, at the Commonwealth Games to be able to pull a gold? I know it's heavily dependent on what the other competitors This is the thing, play. like, I mean, anything can happen. I know that it would need to be probably close to a 160 snatch, which I've done in training, obviously, um, around that 160 mark and clean jerking around the 200, 210 mark, but... I mean, so it's big numbers. Yeah, it's big numbers. It'd need an improvement, but there's guys out there that are doing more than that at the moment that, you know, may continue to go on. They may move up a weight category. All the weight categories are changed now. And mm. for me, weightlifting as a sport, it's, it's really struggling. Um, and I think although CrossFit's raised the awareness of it a lot more, I think that now, like, that is a more attractive, um, proposition for me in terms Absolutely. of like, where the sport is and where it's going, and um, do you see? Could you see yourself competing in CrossFit over the coming years? Yeah, like definitely. local, I local mean, I'm comps doing, and then building up. Yeah, I'm doing a charity one for Battle of Cancer with uh, the one in October in London. Yeah, so I'm competing in that. I might be um, competing against you. Uh, yeah, well, I, I quite like <laughs> I my team. I, go, I hope I don't go head to head with you on a, a single rep. <laughs> got Zach George. Have you? Yeah, Zach George and the Lean Machines Renati. It's a pretty solid team. Well, I mean, even if you don't win, you've probably got the most Instagram followers if you pile them together. So <laughs> yeah. that's that's number one. Um, um, but no, yeah, definitely. Like, I'm not I'm not putting too much pressure on myself because, like I said, for once in my life, I don't have to. Um, yeah, that's cool. It must feel very liberating to have something that's um, 
that's kind of close to what you've done before, but also it must feel like a holiday, like a holiday doing the same thing that you've always done to a degree. Like it's kind of, there's a lot of crossover, there's but it's also new as well. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that I think actually having done CrossFit has assisted my weightlifting like, really? and made me learn about the way that I train and how hard I train in terms of, you know, there's maybe doing a little bit less, but training a little bit smarter and maintaining like still different levels of, uh, of my lifting. You know? So we, we talk about this a lot. We've mentioned it on the podcast with Jordan, Paul and Tim before about just how sophisticated the sport's becoming now. And it's interesting that you've got this massive lift off, you know, weightlifting not so long ago included a, it was a clean and a press, right? And yeah. then it was a clean and jerk. So it was three components like powerlifting yeah. and that changed. But because it's been around for so long, the adolescence of the sport was like, fuck knows when, like yeah. early 1900s, maybe something like that. Yeah. But with CrossFit, like the, the sites only existed since like 2002. Yeah. The, literally the site has existed since then. And the event that they've done at this year's CrossFit Games, 30 Must-Ups for Time, was on the site in 2002. Yeah. That's 16 you, years ago. You say you say this, that, but you look at, you, like a lot of people thought when I, because obviously Matt Fraser was a weightlifter, et cetera, and when they started hearing that I was doing um, weightlifting, move, uh, CrossFit training, they go, wow, he's going to be the next Matt Fraser. And it's like, hang on a minute. Like, <laughs> like the, I'm not being funny having done it now. There's very, like... I reckon my value of actually competing as an elite athlete is more valuable than my skills as a weightlifter because mm. it's, but even then like you look at what these guys are lifting they're lifting near enough like top level weightlifting weights anyway yeah. but it's a completely different energy system like than it is when you're doing a one rep max lift there's very little carryover I so, said like my ability to know how to train hard is more valuable than my weightlifting abilities that but yeah I've picked up a lot of the movements quickly more going back to like what we were saying about having an understanding of the body and how it moves um but there's still so much to learn it's a very principles instead of specialities to a degree isn't it that you understand how to eat and how to train and that that athletic ability of course um yeah I, I mean it's interesting that CrossFit is bringing to the forefront of people the uh, to the forefront of the general public's mind, weightlifting and and strength sports in general. Mm-hmm. It's made it a lot more sexy. Me and you, Definitely. me and you, a lot of the time when we speak, we we make jokes about like powerlifters. Like you know, you are really really strong, but you are cursed with like not very interesting looking kit. <laughs> like, it's it's but you know, like you look at CrossFit and it's like a fucking fashion show. Yeah. To a degree, like, and you're like, every, everyone's able to dress cool and all the movements are it cool. Is a, it is, a, it is a, a bit like a community slash people will call it a cult. Oh, absolutely, yeah. like, But it's, it's strength sports for the, for the fucking Instagram era, right? Like, yeah, it's, but it's know, weirdly very attractive to a very wide diversity of people. And I think it brings people together really well. And that's why I think, yeah, people do class as a community because, you know, you can have your... 40-year-old mum of two training with 20-year-old lad that's just been out on the piss the night before, <laughs> shagged a load of birds, you know what I mean? Train together and they can be completely different abilities and work work out together and bring two very different people together and it'd be like on a level. Yeah, I think um, it's one of the only sports that you get like that which has taken what is typically very individualistic, as you said. You know, I'm sure that you had a lot of friends that you weightlifted with and they would stand around the platform while you were training and support you and stuff like that, but... There must be times that it feels very lonely. 
Oh, extremely lonely. And that's what I said like, after training that long, like very independent for the last sort of four or five years of my career. Um, yeah, it's shit and it's boring. And like, <laughs> that's why I say to people like it is very boring sport or going into a room full of people training together. It's, you know, it's exciting. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, it's, it's a strange, uh, a strange world to be in where you've got such a diverse number of people that are all doing the same sport. And, uh, it's really cool to, uh, to hear that you're maybe going to make that transition over. Um, I wish that we could go on, but I'm eyeing up no, the time. I'm dying for a wee. You I need, need a wee. You've had too much, you've had too much knock <laughs> You need a beer. I'm full of fit aid. And I know that Shark Club stopped serving wings in about 45 minutes. <sighs> so I'm going to get you back it? again. It's quarter to 10. Now. Wow. Come yeah, on. We've been going. So man, thank you so much for coming down. I'll make sure. Uh, can you tell the listeners where they can find you online, please? Yep. Yeah, so mainly on Instagram, Sunny Webster GB. I do have a Facebook page as well, Sunny Webster, but any inquiries you've got about anything, whether it be seminars, programming, etc. as well, you can email me at info web at info at webstar performance.com. Webstar, right? Webstar, not Webster, Webstar. Ah, exactly. So man, thank you for coming on. I'm no gonna problem. get you back. We've got we could talk so much to go. I might just, I might just like video one of our, fa- well, I won't video one of our FaceTime calls. That's a bad idea. But no. maybe one of the more PG ones. We could have gone into like l- some of those very small aspects and spoken for the whole time. detail. Yeah. Man, well, you know, we'll if people, again. if people want you back in the comments below in YouTube, I'll make sure I'll give Sonny a kick every couple of weeks and I'll make him log on and I'll make him go in and have a little bit of a browse through the comments. So if you are watching on YouTube, make sure you do that. Subscribe, Modern Wisdom. Please share the episodes if you want. Follow Sunny online here, Video Guy Dean. Thank you very much. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye bye.